Go ahead and pick your speed up. You're number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director and one of your hosts. I'm Chris Henry, the Museum Programs Representative. And uh, as always, I, I shouldn't say as always, but because uh, uh, we try to get uh, a lot of fun guests. Sometimes it is just us recapping AirVenture, like the last episode. But uh, uh, today we have uh, a really special guest. Um, Sharon Pressler is here with us. Uh, she's going to talk to us about uh, her career in the United States Air Force. I uh, want to make sure I call out Athena's voice for making her trip possible. Uh, she's here to be part of our speaker series. It takes place every third Thursday of the month. Um, but Sharon, we want to give a warm EA welcome to you. Thanks for, for being here with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Awesome. Well, uh, you came in last night. We have an action-packed day today. Um, my favorite question that I want to lead off with, I think it's one that we always enjoy starting with, is, you know, what first really motivated you to want to fly? Yeah, so it's a, it's kind of a funny story. I was um, four years old on my very first airplane ride. It was my mom and my older sister and I were going to England. My mom's from England, and we were going back to live with her parents while my dad served in the Vietnam War. And we got to go up to the cockpit, which you could do, you know, way back then. And um, when the cockpit door opened, it was a moonless night over the Atlantic, and it looked like there were a billion stars in the sky. And it was – I was just breathless. It was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And I went running back to my seat. I was an excited little girl, and I'm like, Mommy, Mommy, I want to be a stewardess. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom, who was – who would Born in the 40s, right? So she's raised in a time when your women stay home and take care of their family. And she looked at me and said, you might want to think about being a pilot. Wow. And and I did. And yeah, that's how, that's how it all started. And from then, I did have a slight detour. You know, when I was probably about 11 or 12, I thought I wanted to play in Major League Baseball. But I can't hit a curveball. So I went back to pilot. That's been my dream. Well, I'm good on your mom for, I mean, early on, uh, you know, saying something like that. that. That's a pretty encouraging mom right there. Yes, yes, it is. she was always. I, uh, I too, wanted to play baseball for a little bit, but I'm from Pittsburgh, and that quickly went away, as <laughs> anybody who follows Pittsburgh baseball knows uh, what I'm talking about. So um, that that's fantastic. Well, what was, what was your sort of, like, next progression? How did you take that first step to, to actually start flight training? Yeah, so um, unfortunately, my mom and dad divorced shortly after he got back from the Vietnam War, so we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So my plan became to go in the Air Force and have them teach me how to fly. And uh, that was the plan all through. Um, and eventually it worked out. It took I had a few detours along the way, a few things to overcome. But yeah, that's it was the Air Force uh, pilot training was an amazing experience. Wow, what was your like? What was your first? Um, I always like to ask people this. What was your first impression when you decided you want to go to the Air Force, and you sign up and you go there, and basic training starts? That first couple days of basic, what is it? Just a culture shock, or what's that like? Well, we uh, in the in ROTC program, you go to field training, which is halfway. Uh, it's in between your uh, sophomore and junior year of college. So by then, you've been in ROTC for a little bit. So you've done some marching, and you've done a little of those things and they try to prepare you for it. But yeah, it's still culture shock. I mean, I'm not used to getting yelled at. I'm not used to getting woken up at six in the morning and expected to be outside in five minutes with my bed already made. You know, those things were, were definitely different, but um, I was still excited about it. I, it's what I wanted to do. I knew it was the path I needed to take and, and field training. I mean, I made some good friends there 
So parts of it were very fun. Now, at that time, what were you what were you going for? Did you have like an MOS already in mind? No. Um, so this was 1984, and uh, women were still very, very restricted on what we could fly in the military. Um, so I had to meet what was called a central selection board. Every woman in ROTC that wanted to fly airplanes, which is what I wanted to do. And that year, there were 350 women met the board, and they gave out 16 pilot slots and 11 navigator slots. Wow. Yeah, but even though I was disappointed when I got a navigator slot. (laughs) 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 I'd like to say I wasn't. I was like, wow, look, I did pretty good. No, I was disappointed. Um, But, you know, I I turned that attitude around. I said, at least I'm in an airplane, and now I've just got to find another way to convince the Air Force to send me to pilot training. So I went off to be a navigator and uh, did that for three and a half years before I got to go to pilot training. So it was almost five years from the time I started navigator training to pilot training. So what is the progression um, for navigator training as far as, uh, you know, where, yeah, where you start off, what you fly um, going through that and, and then uh, where, what that led to? Yeah. So um, you do get, you fly in a backseat of a T-43, which is a 737 essentially, that has a bunch of consoles with radar scopes and Doppler navigation systems. And there's like 20 of us back there all plotting the course of the airplane. And one person is the lead navigator. So they're the ones that actually get to give the pilot directions. And once you finish that, you go off to be a navigator in in some other airplane. And for me, I went to the EC-135 at Offutt. Wow. Wow. What was the community like at Offutt? That that seems like a really uh, interesting base. Yes, I loved it there. Um, Coming from Southern California, you wouldn't think Omaha, Nebraska would be my a really fun assignment for me, but it was. We had, um, you know, the squadron was pretty closely knit. We had a, a good community around us. The, the local community is very supportive of the military there. And I, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, one of the reasons I picked it, it sounds kind of silly at the time, but, you know, 135 people, they sit alert a week at a time. And I didn't want to sit alert for a week at a time. And then the EC-135, you only sit alert for two or three days at a time. So, that seemed a lot better to me than being gone for a whole week. So it was my primary motivation. <laughs> <laughs> well, for those who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about the role of the EC-135? Yes. So it was SAC's Strategic Air Command's Airborne Command Post. So for over 28 years, there was an EC-135 Airborne with a communications link to uh, Strategic Air Command's headquarters and the capability to launch nuclear weapons in case the Russians launched nuclear weapons at us. You know, it's the heart of the Cold War. Um, So there was always a general officer on board. There was a big communications team in the back. There was keys to launch missiles back there. And it was airborne, continuous, never dropped the communication link for over 28 years. Wow, that's incredible. And that was, um, uh, code name was Looking Glass, right? Yes, it was, yeah. You were the star of uh, quite a few uh, TV disaster (laughs) movies back in the 80s, too. (laughs) Yes, it was. (laughs) Wait, and you were telling me you were telling me a little bit about the um, the antenna that you guys would have to, to roll out. Can you talk about? Yeah. That? So in in the event of nuclear war, which luckily we never experienced, um, we would have a thing called a trailing wire antenna, which is a mile long antenna that you can deploy from the back of the airplane, so you can communicate with submarines. Wow. And uh, we practiced that mission, but obviously we never had to do it for real. That is that is wild. I mean, that that's really cool to have uh, a veteran of of Strategic Air Command here as well. Uh, 
what was sitting alert like? I mean, yeah, I, I guess I've seen the old strategic air command movie, you know, and, uh, what was that? What it's, was that like? It's very much like that. Um, so you're just sitting around, you're in, you know, if you're not sleeping, you're in your uniform, you can go to the gym kind of things and you're waiting for the klaxon to go off this really loud, obnoxious bell. And it would ring three times if you needed to run out to your airplane. Everybody go pile in the trucks and get out there and give the security officers the code and jump on your airplane. And it was my job to record the mission and or the message and start deciphering it with our with our with our code key to make sure to decide what our mission was coming in. And we would um, there was always an eleven o'clock uh, klaxon test every day, so you would expect that. And then, you know, you wouldn't always get a, a practice message, but usually once in your two or three days of alert, you'd get. A, a klaxon alert and you'd run out to the airplane and try to get it launched which or at least to, to decode the message and that was very interesting especially in the winter at Offutt as you can imagine it's a little chilly and the airplane's been sitting out there and it gets um, you know you develop hydraulic leaks you get all the things that happen to airplanes in the cold but the funniest story from that was um, we were on alert and the 11 o'clock klaxon test went off and when they do the klaxon test, it's just supposed to go once. Well, there was apparently a new guy in the command post, and he pushed the wrong button. So at 11 o'clock exactly when we should get the klaxon test, the klaxon went off three times. And we all looked at each other, and we're like, well, here we go. And we ran out to the airplane, right? And the poor security forces guy, he's confused because we're not supposed to be there, right? And we basically flashed him the signals we were supposed to and jumped on the airplane, and then poor command post is trying to get us a message because we weren't they didn't think we were supposed to be there so it took a little while to get a message that basically said stand down right and then there was this big debrief because things didn't go quite the way they were supposed to but it was pretty funny we're like well that was three klaxons we need to go to the airplane even though it is exactly at 11 o'clock <laughs> now for uh for that mission would you would you always fly with a flag officer in the back Yes, always. So you also had so you had a, a general basically standing alert with you guys, right? Or how did that work? Um, no. Okay. So the airborne, um, the one that was continuously airborne, had a general officer. Okay. But we would launch sometimes. Um, you could either provide a uh, um, a link to the other airplane if there's something going wrong with the ground okay, station. I see. Yeah. You could do other things. So there was not a general officer on alert. So, okay. So the so the 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 alert role was was kind of as a as a backup aircraft. Yes. Yeah. You did have all the communications teams, so you had, you know, 20 people running out to the airplane. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. That yeah. is that is interesting. I I could easily derail this podcast and we could talk <laughs> EC135 all day, but I know people listening are like, "Hey man, I want to hear about the F16." <laughs> so um so what came after your time at Offit with the EC135? Yeah, so I got uh, they did on um, these rated selection boards and I got selected to go to pilot training. Um, so I went off to pilot training and I absolutely, I learned I loved pulling G's. I was a big roller coaster kid when I was little and I still am now, but, um, you know, for pulling G's for the, for the people in the audience, the G is, uh, the gravitational force of the earth and all of our life is spent at one G. That's what keeps us on the earth. And if you've ridden a roller coaster and you feel all squished down in your seat and you feel that pressure, that's what pulling G's is like. And roller coasters generally pull three to three and a half G's. And the T-38 can pull 7.2. And I loved it. I absolutely <laughs> loved it. It was my favorite thing. 
So um, after pilot training, you know, I, I thought about staying to be an instructor so I could keep pulling G's, but I didn't really want to do that because the T-38 from the back seat, when you're five foot, almost four, it's very hard to see. So I didn't want to be in that position as an instructor. So I chose the uh, Learjet, the C-21. And at this time, uh, the Air Force had started this new process with assignments where the class got rank ordered, and then they went from – they got a big pool of assignments for all of us, and they went from base to base and said, okay, number one person at Williams Air Force Base, what do you want? And then number one around. And so you kind of got to pick your assignment from what was left available that the Air Force needed, you know, so within reason. And um, there were rumors when I was graduating pilot training about maybe women being allowed to fly fighters someday. So I've always been a little bit of a smart aleck. So when I got up there to pick my assignment, you know, I'm sitting next to the wing commander. I'm a captain. And he goes, so Captain Pressler, what'll it be? And I said, well, sir, that F-16 to be determined looks really good. And he just scowled at me <laughs> and said, okay, but what do you really want? I'm like, well, I guess I'll take that C-21 to Andrews, sir. <laughs> and off I went to my Learjet to Andrews <laughs> Air Force Base and never thought another thing of it until things changed. So, Wow. Well, and so, and I saw some some photos. You were actually sort of on hand when the announcement got made that uh, things were changing, right? Yes, yes. That was such an interesting um, 48 hours in my life. My husband and I just got home from vacation. Um, we have four messages on our answering machine, you know, because this is now 1993. We don't have cell phones. And I listen to the first one, and it's my boss, my DO from my squadron. He's like, hey, call me as soon as you get in. And I, you know... I'm still a captain. I think to myself, I'm I'm still on vacation, you know, boss. <laughs> the second message and the third and the fourth message were all from my boss. Call me, call me, call me. And I went, oh, okay, I probably better call you. <laughs> so I did. And when I got a hold of him, he wanted me to call this colonel at the Pentagon. And I didn't have any idea what it was about. And neither did he. So I called him and he worked for General Bowles, who was the chief of personnel for the Air Force, four-star general. I'm like, hmm, Okay. And after kind of swearing me to secrecy, he asked me if I wanted to go fly that F-16 that I could have had in pilot training. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Of course I do. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, all right, we'll be in General Bull's office tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Yes, sir. You know, I hang up the phone and my husband looks at me and he's like, what's going on? And I said, well, I think I might get to go fly the F-16. And he's like, what? I go, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, honey, but I got to go to the Pentagon in the morning. So I showed up at the Pentagon in the morning, and if you've never been to the Pentagon like I had never been to the Pentagon, that place is a maze. It's just a maze. So I got there super early and uh, found my way finally to General Bull's office, and it was myself and Jeannie Flynn, now Jeannie Levitt, and Martha McSally. And we sat there and listened to General Bull's tell us the combat exclusion was lifted, and we were going to be the first three women to fly fighters in the Air Force. And this is, you know, less than 24 hours from my phone call to his colonel. So once again, super excited, wanted to jump up and scream and shout and didn't because I was in the general's office. And then um, after that announcement, we went and we got some some public relations training because <laughs> the very next morning we were back for a press conference with General Peak, who was the chief of staff of the Air Force. And uh, while well, he announced, you know, that we were going to, the combat exclusion was lifted and we were going to go fly fighters. So I mean, that was just a whirlwind, and we got to answer a bunch of questions at the press conference. And it's kind of funny, because at the time, I thought I was doing a really good job of keeping professional-looking and neutral, and apparently that press conference is now on YouTube like everything else, because a friend of mine sent me a link to it, <laughs> and I went back and looked, and some of the looks I gave people, I'm like, oh, 
yeah, I was definitely not neutral. And <laughs> But the questions were so silly to me. You know, I'm sure they weren't silly to the people asking them, probably not to some of the other people. But, you know, when it comes down to it, the airplane doesn't know what gender I am. The airplane does what I tell it to, just like everybody else. So we got a lot of questions about that. And I just, I think I got a little frustrated with it. But um, that's the way it goes. And then uh, the next day, we went off on different uh, kind of media tours. I was on CNN and the Today Show and I think Howard Stern's radio show and a bunch of other things. And and it was crazy because then when I went back to flying the C-21, the general officers knew me. Hmm. And they wanted to talk to me, right? And I'm like, I'm just the co-pilot, you know? Um, and then it was just a, a continual whirlwind. Wow. So at that point, you were you, you had flown the T-38. Mm-hmm. Um, and how long had you been in the Learjet? Um Six months when they made the announcement. Okay, so so you hadn't been that far out of no, yeah, and well, and it was interesting because part of the you know it seems like it seems like just crazy luck and good timing, right? I come home from vacation, I get a phone call, I get to go fly the F sixteen. That's awesome. But the, the process they used to select people was you had to have had a fighter available to you when you graduated from pilot training, and you had to not be in a major weapon system, which means you have to be in an airplane you're going to have to be retrained from anyway. So the Learjet wow. is a three-year assignment, and then you go off to a KC-10 or a KC-135 or some other major weapon system airplane. And you had to get recommendation from your commander. So they had called and talked to my commander before they talked to me. And that, you know, those were the criteria. So it was it was another instance of me kind of um, not doing necessarily what I'm supposed to do because when I was graduating from pilot training, because I had been a navigator – I'd already been in the Air Force six years, and they told me I should go right to a major weapon system, that I should go to the 135 or the E3 or something to get my career going because I was kind of a little behind. But I figured that if I didn't do well enough in pilot training, I wouldn't have gotten an airplane because they were banking people then, which meant you sat around for three years. So I decided to just, if I'm going to volunteer for something, I'm going to volunteer for something I want to do. So I went to the Learjet, and if I wouldn't have, if I would have gone to the E3 or the 135, I never would have gotten to the F-16. So sometimes you just got to follow your heart. Yeah. So I take it um, you you probably trained in something like a T-38 again, um, more T-38 time. And then did you do like a two-seat F-16? Um, yes. So you do um, – we did what's called fighter lead-in training, which was in a T-38 and in, involved some air-to-air maneuvering and some uh, – bomb dropping, and then you go off to Luke Air Force Base for F-16 training. And the, yeah, your first few flights are in a two-seat model. Um, but even my first flight in the two-seat model, it was amazing. I don't care if there's somebody back there with me or not. I just, you know, the afterburner lighting, you can feel the stages of it, acceleration. It was like nothing I'd ever felt before. Well, and and I'm sure this might build on that, but uh, the, the first solo flight, the first time you took up the F-16 by yourself, uh, is that something that stands out for you, how you felt? Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's exciting and kind of almost a little bit nerve-wracking at the same time. So you have your instructor pilot is right there in another airplane flying, like, he's not in fingertip formation, but he's flying a chase formation, so he's keeping an eye on you the whole time. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just peaceful to not have somebody right there in your cockpit with you all the time. I mean, I, I loved that about the F-16, that, that just, I mean, you almost flew with somebody and that you were in a formation and, and really to employ the F-16, it doesn't do you any good to be off by yourself. 
but it's it's a different feeling when you're when you're flying it by yourself and I loved that and every time after that I could go fly by myself it was special was there kind of a moment at one point when you're walking away from that airplane that day or up to it, you know, that you're just like, oh, my God, I'm about to do this or I just did this? Is it, was there? Yeah, kind of the whole the whole day was kind of like that. I mean, honestly, it was just. Yeah, it's, I mean, it was from the time I found out that I was going to get to go fly the F-16 to the time I soloed was probably at least a year because they kept me in the C-21 another six months. So I had a full year in the C-21. And then between, they made me go through banked recall trainings in the T-38 and then a fighter lead in. And then you get months of academics and simulators when you get to training before you go fly. So it was definitely the culmination of a lot of hard work. Well, and your, and I guess that's another question I like to ask is your training uh, in the fighters and you're actually flying the fighters. Was there ever a moment uh, where you kind of realized that, I mean, you you guys were the first females to do this. Was there a was there a, a sort of feeling that maybe you were you were leading the charge for more, you know, for others? Oh yeah, I definitely felt that, and and it really caused me problems for a while because I put a lot of pressure on myself. Right, I knew. Um, unfortunately, it was obvious that there were some people that didn't think women should fly fighters in and out of the military, and some of them were in my own squadron when I was in training. So. Yeah, I felt a lot of pressure. If I mess this up, then those people who didn't think we should be here in the first place would look and go, told you so. You know, maybe this isn't such a good idea. Maybe we should rethink this. So I did put a lot of pressure on myself, uh, feeling that I really had to succeed because I knew there's more women that want to do this. Um, and that caused me some significant issues in training sometimes. And I finally had to put that away and get past it and just focus on flying the jet. And stop worrying about what people thought about me or if I was good enough or what, you know, what the future held and just every single day go fly. Oh, that's fantastic. And yeah, clearly you did because <laughs> uh, our military looks a lot different now than it did in the 1980s, thankfully. So yes. that's fantastic. Um, do you have a most memorable flight in the F-16? Yes. Well, there's a few. Um, it's funny because... Uh, when you go to do an airline interview, because I worked for Southwest Airlines after I retired, they ask you, um, there's two things. One, I ejected from the F-16, so they have to hear that story because I've basically totaled a $25 million airplane, and they want to know why and if I was <laughs> trustworthy. Um, so I told that story, and then it was funny because the lady asked me, she says, so I was going to ask you when you were probably the most, if there was a time you were ever scared flying the airplane, but I, I think you've already answered that. And I'm like, well, no, not really. And she looked at me and I said, well, I didn't have time to be scared on that flight because it it was just one of those classic mishaps where things just keep snowballing and snowballing and snowballing. And by the time you realize how bad it is, you don't have anything to do but get out, right? So, but I had a different emergency. Ironically, in the exact same airplane I ended up ejecting from a year later where uh, I was in the back seat this time and I was an instructor and we were doing some... Uh, Basic fighter fundamentals with two students. So we had two students and two instructors in just two airplanes. And we we're flying along in this, I saw this light flicker from the back. And it's in the in the warning, caution and warning panel. And it was the reservoir low light, which should never come on in the airplane. Unless you're running out of gas. And we weren't running out of gas. So I called knock it off. We stopped the fight. 
Um, I had the student run through the tanks because I don't have a switch in the back. We have one fuel gauge for all the tanks and you just switch it to different ones. And sure enough, our uh, aft reservoir was not full. And it should be because we had plenty of fuel in the wings. So we have some kind of trap fuel issue. I don't know what it is. We zoom back, we zoom up to get up to altitude so we can glide if we need to. We go back to Luke. And of course, this is one of the days at Luke Air Force Base where it's not VFR. It's not visual flight rules. The ceiling is just above the pattern, right? And Luke is in Arizona. Yeah, sorry. sorry. Luke is in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's sunny there 360 days of the year, it seems like. (laughs) So um, unfortunately, when that happens, because our air traffic controllers don't get a lot of practice handling a lot of weather, things tend to be a little hectic. And so I was declaring an emergency due to fuel, and they thought I was declaring emergency fuel. So while that gets you some priority, it doesn't really get you the priority you needed. So I ended up at some point, I told the instructor in the other airplane, I said, you talk to ATC, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out here, I'm going to line up, I'm going to do a straight in SFO, simulated flame out landing. So if my engine does quit, we can still land the airplane. And he's like, got it. So I just focus on flying now because I'm using just a TACAN to line myself up with a runway I can't see. Now, this is where being at Spangdalem helped because we used to practice that in the sim all the time because Spangdalem, the weather often was not sunny and clear. And if you had to land somewhere with a flame, from a flame out landing, this is what you needed to do. So I get the jet lined up where I think it should be and you start the descent and you are descending relatively quickly. Like instead of a nice 400 feet per minute, you're doing 1,500 to 2,000 feet per minute. And the poor guy in the front, he... Even though I've told him what's going on, he didn't really understand, and he was way more nervous than I understood. But I just kept telling him, because in the back of the F-16, you have a TV camera that shows you the front of what's going on, but you can't see as well as you would like. So I'm like, tell me if you see the field. Tell me if you see the field. He's like, okay. We'll finally break out, and we are no kidding lined up perfectly on the runway, so it's my lucky day. And we land, and I think everything's fine, and he puts the hook down, doesn't tell me, which is okay. And we're stopped and um, by this point, both the reservoir lights are on. We have 200 pounds of usable fuel, which for the F-16, we don't taxi with less than 600 pounds of usable fuel because the fuel is used to cool things. So that's definitely um, not comfortable. And we shut the, the, shut the jet down there and they come out and they tow us back, right? Well, and as I'm talking to my poor student, he is the whole time I'm diving at the ground, sure that I'm lined up on the runway. He thinks we're, he doesn't have good situational awareness on where we are, and he's concerned about the White Tanks Mountains, which are just to the west of Luke Air Force Base. So he's sitting there the whole time with his hands on the ejection handle, thinking he's going to have to make a split decision to get out when he sees the, the mountains pick up in front of him instead of the runway. But he didn't say anything to me, right? So I didn't know. Um, and it all worked out, you know? And I will tell you, though, the thing with emergencies, if you've ever had anything like that, is you don't think about all the things that could go wrong until you're on the ground. So we're stopped on the runway, and uh, my feet and my legs just start shaking, right? It's the adrenaline. And, of course, I'm the cool instructor pilot. So I'm like, hey, Joe, would you hold the brakes for me for a minute? I have to get something out of my helmet back. Yes, ma'am. So... I'm digging around in the back like I'm getting something out of my helmet bag and all I'm really doing is taking a few deep, few deep breaths and getting myself calmed down. <laughs> and then I take, I'm, okay, I got it, thanks. And I take the brakes back and everything's good. But 
Wow. It was a, it was, that was the day because it took so long to develop. I realized for longer how serious the situation was and we could have easily ended up jumping out of that airplane if we needed to. So. Wow. Now you you mentioned the ejection. So we got, we got to ask you about, (laughs) I think people would be mad if you came on, mentioned an ejection and then we never asked you about it. So. Yes. Yes. So there was a string at Luke of, I think nine ejections in the space of about a year, a year and a half, maybe less. We had an issue with the with the burner can of the airplane that had microscopic cracks that they couldn't see, and then basically the the afterburner would fall off, and then the engine would overheat itself and quit. So people were um, punching out of airplanes for that quite often, unfortunately. But that's not what happened to me. So I digress. I was at a I was at Beale Air Force Base for a static display with a friend of mine from the squadron. We get up the next morning. We uh, go to head head back to Luke. I start my airplane, and I get a battery low light. I'm like that's weird, but I actually had a battery with me in my travel pod because apparently this airplane has a history of battery problems. And the Hill demo team, maintenance team, is there, so they change my battery. Awesome. Start up the jet, go home. All right, we get about. 100, 120 miles northwest uh, of Phoenix, of Luke, and I get the battery low light again. That's not so good. So we have procedures for this, right? It's not a big deal. In the F-16, because it's an electric jet and it's single engine, if you get a low battery light, you have to fire the emergency power unit. And what that does is it provides electricity for you. If your motor quits for some reason, you can restart it because otherwise your battery would do that. So I fire my emergency power unit. I tell my flight lead because I'm the wingman heading back and and we talk about what we're going to do. Okay, that's all great. And I'm reading through the procedures for a, um, activated EPU because we have a hydrazine is what fires our EPU and it's dangerous to people. So you want to make sure you follow the right um, the right procedures so you don't endanger the ground crew at all. So I'm reviewing that, not paying much attention. And the next thing I know, my flight lead is like, right next to me instead of out at 6,000 feet, he's close to fingertip. And I look and he gives me the, the, I can't hear you sign. Or he gives me the, hey, go to channel 13. And I'm like, and I talk to him. I'm on channel 13. He doesn't hear me. I don't hear him. So now I don't have any radios to communicate with. Okay. So we go through the Nordo procedures, right? Which Nordo is, I don't know what exactly stands for, but basically you can't communicate. And... So the plan is he leads me to a straight in at Luke and then he will pass me the lead when I'm cleared to land and I'll land and I'll taxi clear and shut down and they'll take me back. No big deal. So we put our gear down on short final for the landing and you don't think there's a lot of noise from the radios in the airplane, but when there's no radios, it's really feels quiet. It's kind of eerie almost. And um, so I put the landing gear down. I hear all three of them clunk, clunk, clunk. They're down. I don't have any green lights. You should always get your three green lights, right? Confirm your landing gear down. So when he goes to pass me the lead to land, I'd shake it off and I tell him no. And he kind of gives me a, a what's up kind of sign and I tell him to go check my gear. So he goes below, checks my landing gear, comes back, gives me a thumbs up, landing gear, good. I'm like, okay. Well, now, of course, we've been, none of this happens and you, you keep moving while this is going on. So we can't land out of this approach. So we go back around and, uh, and he gives me the lead and I land. And I'm just kind of thinking, I hope everything else works, right? I don't know what, quite what's going on. There's no, there's no emergency procedure for exactly what's happening. So I land, I lower the nose to the runway, 
I step on the brakes and my feet go straight to the floor. Just like in the simulator when your brakes don't work. Like, mm. So the procedure is we have two channels of brakes. I go to channel two. Feet go straight to the floor. Not procedure. I go back to channel one because I can't really believe what's happening is happening. Still doesn't work. I'm like, okay. So the next things are turn your anti-skid off. I do that. Nothing. Um, as we get closer to the end of the runway, you can always try your parking brake and it's going to blow your tires, but at least you're going to stop parking brake. Nothing. Okay. Put the hook down, right? Because we have a hook and we have cables at the end of the runway, kind of like on an aircraft carrier. And there's a light that should come on that says hook unlocked. That light doesn't come on, but I figure, well, my landing gear lights aren't on either and they're working. So maybe my hook works. As you can guess, it probably didn't. I missed the first cable. And then uh, there's the first cable's a thousand feet before the end of the runway. And there's another cable at the end of the runway before the overrun. So I get to the second cable, nothing. And what they teach you when you first start flying the F-16, if you look at it, one of the reasons it's such a sleek looking airplane is it has these little tiny landing gear, right? So it's kind of like an unstable tricycle when it's on the ground. So what they teach you is if you depart the prepared surface greater than taxi speed, get out. So... As I approach the end of the overrun, still going about 70 miles an hour, I decide it's time to get out, and I eject. And it's one of those things that, I mean, it, it all seemed very logical and controlled, and I didn't, it wasn't scary really at that point because it was just happening relatively quickly. Um, but man, you pull that ejection handle, and it seems like it takes forever for anything to happen. Forever. And uh, finally, I could, um, you know, the, like the smell from fireworks or uh, the cordite smell? I smell that, and then I see the smoke billowing up, and then I finally start moving. So that's good. Well, I'm in a two-seat D model, and I'm in solo like I'm supposed to be on the ejection handle, so only my seat will eject. But what I didn't realize at the time is even if you're in solo, the seats are designed to deconflict from each other. So the front seat goes up and to the right, and the back seat, if it ejects, goes up and to the left so you don't tangle each other up. So when you eject, it, you're subject initially to just about 13 Gs, which is more Gs than even I like. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for a few moments, I couldn't see anything. Right? I was conscious. I knew what was going on. I could feel myself going up and then going to the right, which I didn't like. But I couldn't see. And then as the G-force reduces, you know, you get blood pressure back to your brain and your eyeballs and you can see again. And you separate from the seat and then you get opening shock of your parachute and everything seems like it's, you know, going okay. And I look up and I have a good shoot and I'm like, okay, yes, yeah, something is working right today, right? Something. So I noticed that the, uh, the jet below me is going super fast, like faster than when I got out even. And it gets airborne and takes 200 feet, 300 feet of inner perimeter fence with it across Northern Avenue, which is a public street, <laughs> with the signs that say, caution, low-flying aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> and it lands in a farmer's field and crunches itself and turns back around facing the, facing the runway. Well, I get distracted by that. Plus, the last time I trained in how to do a parachute landing fall was at least a decade ago. So my parachute landing fall, the way we're supposed to land with a little roll so we don't hurt ourselves, I didn't do that. I landed on my feet and then promptly on my tailbone and then smacked my head against the back of the ground. Oof. But I have my helmet on, so it didn't really seem to hurt that much. And you have a lot of adrenaline going, so I just got up and apparently um, the supervisor of flying that's in the tower says I threw my helmet down on the ground. I don't remember that. I remember being 
angry and confused because I had no idea why my flight ended up with me sitting on my rear end in the dirt. And by the time the fire department shows up and the ambulance shows up, my heart rate is still 180 beats per minute when they get me in the ambulance because the tech is worried about it. And the flight surgeon's like, nah, it'll be okay. So the jets totaled. I cracked my tailbone. It's 11 days before I get to go fly again. And even then, I'm a little concerned, right? I mean, logically, what are the chances of having to eject twice? Pretty slim, right? But emotionally, I'm a little concerned. You know, I'd never really worried about my safety flying an F-16, which might seem crazy, but we're very well trained. Our maintenance is really good. I just didn't worry about it. And so I kind of had a decision to make, and it was a longer process than I would maybe like to admit. Um, But I eventually decided, yes, I need to go fly again. So I, I went back to fly again, and I'm glad I did, but it's a you know, fighter pilots were not ever, ever afraid of anything, right? That's part of the that's part of the deal. Everybody's seen Top Gun. We're never <laughs> afraid of anything. Um, but yeah, I was a little concerned in the first the first probably even the first six months. Every time I landed and I stepped on, I went to step on the brakes. I wouldn't think about anything. It, the whole the whole flight, I was busy doing my thing, and then I would go to step on the brakes, and they would work, and I'd go, ah, that's nice, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Wow, that is incredible! What an incredible story you tell it so detailed too. Thank you. <laughs> Did you ever find out what um, what had happened? Yes. So um, there's a new checklist in the F-16. You know, most pilots never want to be the source of checklists <laughs> or cautions <laughs> or warnings or those kind of things. But yeah, I pretty much have my own checklist, and it's called partial electrical failure. What happened was the when my battery was changed, the battery bus got isolated. So there's a breaker in there. There's two breakers. We were always taught there's two battery buses. In reality, there's one battery bus with two breakers. Well, one of these breakers, they decided had never worked from the time it was manufactured. And the other one popped when they changed my battery. So everything that's on the battery bus, which is your most important things, like your hook and your brakes and your radios, um, they were isolated from the time I took off and the battery was the only thing powering them. So So the EPU did not power that stuff once you once you activated it? It, it will if the circuit breakers are not. If so it runs through properly. the same breaker. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, there's two breakers and they both yeah. weren't working. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that was the idea, right? You fire the EPU and everything's fine. And my main generator was working, my EPU was working, but everything on the battery bus was only powered by the battery, which eventually, after I fired the EPU, died. Yeah. So there was no way any of that stuff was ever going to work. Gee. So basically, I was going to eject at the end of the runway, or I was going to eject over the White Tank Mountains or somewhere, but I wasn't going to land safely. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. The um. Well, what before we we wrap up because I know we're we're starting to head toward uh, the end of the clock here. Could you just run us through like your your unit assignments in the F sixteen, like where you deployed, where you were? Yeah, sure. My uh, my first assignment was at Spengdalem Air Base, Germany, in the twenty second Fighter Squadron. And from there, we would we deployed to Interlick a couple times in support of Operation Northern Watch after the first desert storm. After that, I went back to Luke as an instructor, which is where I had my couple of emergencies we've talked about. And after Luke, I went to Leavenworth for school with the Army and then to a staff job at NORAD, which is a whole other case of interesting stories. And then um, after that, I went to Shaw Air Force Base. That was where I retired from. And I was in all three squadrons at Shaw, the 77th, wow. the 55th, and the 79th, because initially I was attached. And then I was the DO of the 79th. Well, and one that uh, 
we we're going to have our own show about eventually is you were working on uh, NORAD on 9-11. Yes. Yes. Like you said, everybody has a 9-11 story. I have a 9-11 story from Cheyenne Mountain. So wow. oh, That's a whole separate show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tom, I think you have a, a follow-up question. Yeah, I did have a, I did have a question when you're talking about your, uh, your, your duty assignments. Um, I've, I've heard this story from a, <clears throat> excuse me from a few other people who have had a career track similar to yours, where you're um, not the most you're the most junior pilot in a squadron, but you're not the most junior or junior officer or least tenured. Um, was there was obviously so? First of all, you're you're you know you're you're a pioneer showing up at the squadron as the first woman. Uh, but uh, was was there any dynamic on that as well? Um, yes, there was some. So I was actually the chief of scheduling pretty early on in my first F-16 assignment, which is not usual. But also because they felt I had never been a snacko, I was the snacko and the chief of scheduling at the same time. <laughs> um, and then after about a year, year and a half, I went up to the wing and uh, was the deputy chief of safety, which is definitely not the normal thing to do on your first fighter assignment. So I never got to do like I was never in the weapons shop where you learn, spend all your time learning tactics and things. I was, um, but that was okay. I mean, I still they made sure I still got plenty of flying. I still uh, got the experience I needed. But yeah, they're trying to look out for how do we balance making sure you have the responsibilities that get you promoted on time and making sure you mature as an F-16 pilot. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for your, for your support of our museum program. Um, as we talked yesterday, uh, as I got you from the airport, we immediately decided that you're going to have multiple trips here, I think. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, again, thank you so much for, for being here and, and for your service and what, everything you've done to uh, sort of blaze a path for for those behind you. Well, thank you, Chris. Yeah, I really I really enjoy being here. It's a beautiful place. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Chris, and thanks, Sharon, uh, for uh, for sharing your stories with us. Um, so um, to wrap up this episode, uh, again, just uh, you know, Chris mentioned it at the beginning, but um, we are here for another museum speaker series. It happens uh, monthly. Uh, obviously, this is our restart after taking a break in July, um, and. Uh, if if you're anywhere in the Oshkosh area or the Upper Midwest or really anywhere in the country, uh, we have we have we have some speakers that make it very worthwhile for you to come here. Um, usually one of the uh, the later Thursdays of the month, depending. Um, so check our website for anything like that. We also have a uh, Facebook page that uh, that that posts those events. That's the EA Aviation Museum Facebook page, right, Chris? Absolutely. Yep. So the green dot is uh, uh, produced by a number of people. Pre-production is done by uh, by Chris and and uh, the scheduling and, uh, and and research that he does. Um, our uh, uh, Scott is running our board and also does the post-production of the episode. And then we have our publications and marketing team that handle the, the distribution. Uh, your hosts are myself, Chris, and Hal Bryan. Um, and Thank you so much, everybody, for listening, for leaving your reviews and um, all that other good stuff. Uh, it, it was great. Uh, this is our second episode we're, we're, that we're taping after uh, after AirVenture. And um, I, it still blows me away when people come up and say, hey, I, I, I recognize you from the green dot. I'm like, <laughs> you do? You're, you're, you're one of the <laughs> you're one of the two who's listening. Yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, we really uh, we really appreciate all the support and uh, and how this this uh, podcast has grown over the last um Gosh, uh, six years, six years. Yeah. So um, thank you, everybody, for, uh, for for listening and uh, for, for leaving all of your comments and reviews. And we'll catch you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot. Mm-hmm.